You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Rankings. Hello, welcome to Nick Luck Daily, the show that brings you the latest news, the sharpest insight from around the world of horse racing. Tom Stanley in for Nick on Tuesday the 12th of April. We'll be coming to the news that Whirlpool 2022 launched last night at Tattersall's in Newmarket. I thought there was cause for optimism off the back of that. We, we will be discussing that in more detail. That is Lee Mottershead, senior writer at the Racing Post and I. There was an impassioned John Gosden speech at the end of it as well, which made for particularly interesting listening. We do start, though, with an article that Lee wrote off the back of the Grand National on Saturday. So more Grand National reflection, Lee. You suggested that we should really always be prepared to ask questions. Yeah, I think it's absolutely essential, Tom, that we are willing to ask questions and to look at the race um, in the cold light of day. Now, I preface all that by repeating, as I've said in print on numerous occasions, that the Grand National is my favourite race of the year. Grand National Day is my favourite day of the year. I adore the whole thing and that hasn't changed and I would be as willing now to defend the race and the sport as I ever would be, as I ever have been. But um, equally, I think we have to recognise that um, what happened on on Saturday and, and then on, on Sunday um, has put um, a spotlight on the race again. Um, it was a it was a fantastic race in many ways, and I would echo everything that David Yates said on the pod yesterday about the victory of, of Sam Whaley Cohen. It was something really to lord and to celebrate. But there was a second strand to uh, the race this year. We lost two horses, Discarama and Eclair Surf. That means now that in the last three runnings of the Grand National, we've lost a total of four horses. Now, you can contextualise that by saying we've also lost four horses in the last nine runnings of the Grand National because the previous six runnings, thankfully, were fatality-free. And you could also contextualise it by saying that two of the four horses who died in those last three runnings of the Grand National died while galloping. And, of course, that can happen to any horse in any race, on the gallops, at home, in a paddock. Sadly, horses... Um, that, that happens to horses sometimes. It's a real desperately sad situation, but it does happen. However, the, the fact remains that we've lost four horses in the last three runnings of the Grand National, and to an extent that has parallels with where we were in 2012 when the BHA and the Jockey Club joined forces and had a thorough review of the Grand National at a time when we'd lost four horses in the previous two runnings of the Grand National. Significant changes were made to the race, particularly to the fences, to their inner inner cores of the fences, to landing sides, to the distance between the, uh, the start of the race and the first fence. And the fact that the first six runnings thereafter were fatality free, I think was a real cause for optimism. Um, and I think that generally speaking, what they did at that time was the right thing to do. Um, and I think they had to do something, and I think they responded very well indeed. We are, though, now 
in a situation where I think it would be wrong not to look um, at the race uh, again. Now, I'm not saying, Tom, that we need to do things. It may well be that we don't do things at the moment. But I think for the good of the race, and that's what should be at all our, in all our hearts, doing what's best for the Grand National, I think we have to look at certain things. I think it is reasonable to say that we should be looking at the size of the field. Um, 40 runners, clearly it's the biggest field of the entire year, but on a track that's wider than, than any other jumps track. There's, there's more room for the horses than any other jumps track. Um, you can equally argue that uh, there are 30 runners or so in the Topham Trophy. Uh, that still has that still has fallers, and a reduction in the size of the field might do nothing whatsoever. But it's something I think that's worth looking at. I think it's worth looking at again the distance between the start and the first fence. It's it's been reduced, but it's still a it's still a long old run. Um, they went a, a proper gallop on Saturday to that first fence. I, I read. Uh, coverage that's indicated it was the fastest run from the start to the first fence since the changes um, were made. Um, so I think we need to look at that. I think we need to consider things like the ground conditions that the race is, is run on. Does there is there a, a difference in what happens when the race is staged on, on, on softer ground compared to, to quicker conditions? So none of these might yield answers. Um, and it might well be that nothing needs to be done. It might be that what David Yates suggested yesterday about looking at the size of the fences and maybe even making them bigger. Again, as David says, that is a hard sell to the public, but it's something that should be looked at because I think we need to look at, look at everything, even if, as I say, at the end of that process, we decide that, no, for now, we do nothing. Uh, we need more data. We need more time. We need to see things in the bigger picture. That would be fine. Um, and I would just say I, I, I still say, I still adore the Grand National, but watching the race back on, on Saturday, when I saw the third fence and the fate that befell Eclair Surf with horses after him, I did wince. Um, and that's not a great thing to say when you're when you're watching a horse race as a racing journalist that you winced at a moment. Now, against that, with more contextualization, we're talking about jump racing. And sometimes in jump racing, things happen that do cause you to wince, even when you're involved in the sport. But in a wider context, we all believe in the sport. We all love the sport. We know how well the horses are treated. We know they're bred to race and that um, the vast majority of them, I think they look like they, they enjoy it very much indeed. So I'm not in any way questioning the, uh, the, the, the right to exist of jump racing or the Grand National. I absolutely adore them both, but I think for the good of them both, it is right to, to look at these questions again after a period of a run of fatalities as we've had. The other thing I wanted to touch on with you, Lee, was, was your piece, which I regretfully have missed. I think it was, um, it was Friday, perhaps, where you wrote about the Jockey Club deal with Playtech. And there was also then a, a follow-up with the uh, Jockey Club chief executive, Nevin Truesdale, claiming that this deal has, has been a touch misunderstood. Just expand on that for us, Lee, if you can. Yeah, so, so this was this was the, um, the the big read that we do to come in, in the in the post every Sunday. In, in effect, it was a, it was a special report looking at the Jockey Club um, at a time when the Jockey Club um, has been central to a number of headlines in recent years, and it was really based around that that question that does the Jockey Club or is the Jockey Club at the moment fulfilling 
its stated mission by Royal Charter, which it has to fulfil, to work for the good of, of, of British racing. That it, 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 everything it does, it has to act in the long-term good of the sport. And in recent uh, months and years, there have been stories that have caused some to question that. There was the, there was the proposed sale of, of Kempton Park uh, for redevelopment. Now, that is no longer on the table due to uh, changes in, in regulations regarding uh, the site. Um, but that was, a, that was a big issue for the Jockey Club. We, had, uh, we have at the moment uh, the option on the table of extending the Cheltenham Festival to, to five days, from four days. Um, and as you referenced, Tom, we had the, the Playtech deal, um, which caused an awful lot of, of controversy, um, whereby the, the Jockey Club has done a, a deal with a, a gaming technology company, Playtech, uh, for uh, games to be produced uh, with Jockey Club branding. Now, that has caused significant controversy because that was announced by Playtech at a time when the, the sport is deeply engaged in the gambling review process. The, the government will be proposing, will putting, putting forward a, a white paper uh, that will shape the future of gambling in the United Kingdom uh, for years to come. That is due in the next month or so, I think. Um, and the, the horse racing industry has been making a concerted effort to draw a clear line between gaming and gambling and stressing that the two are very separate entities. So I think a lot of people in the industry were perplexed when the Jockey Club was seen to be doing a deal with a gaming company at that time. Now, Nevin Truesdale, the, the, the chief executive of the Jockey Club, he, he spoke to me about that in that in the in the piece. He said, "I do think, to a degree, that particular deal and decision has been a little misunderstood. These games, he claimed, are very safe, um, and they've been around for years with close things to racing. For us, basically, he said, for us, it's about saying if someone is is using brands similar to our own, aren't we better off teaming up with them and actually getting something for it for horse racing? Now, others have vociferously uh, disagreed." and have argued that the timing of this deal was appalling and that the, the optics are very bad indeed. So I think that was, that, that was central to the piece. Subsequently as well, we've had talk of or, or proposals, very loose proposals at the minute for an all-weather race course in Newmarket. And that, I think, when that develops steam and if it becomes more of a reality, that again could divide people at the moment. There seems to be general support in, in Newmarket for it, not complete support, but general support in Newmarket for it. There might well be talk about that over the coming three days. But in, 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 in a wider sense, Tom, the, the point of the piece was asking, is the Jockey Club working for the good of, of British racing? And I think even Nevin Truesdale admitted that it is a subjective thing. Um, the Jockey Club believed that selling Kempton, for example, would be for the good of British racing because of the money it would yield. Other people said, no, it would be a disastrous move for British racing. So it is a, a subjective thing. And I think it is useful that there is an acknowledgement that a jock, the Jockey Club's actions can't be guaranteed to be for the good of British racing. What is good for the Jockey Club isn't necessarily for the good of British racing. Um, that the, the, the two things don't necessarily correlate there is subjectivity to interpreting what the jockey club does and that will remain the case going forward and just tying in with that the, the piece from um jonathan harding where he 
references the the danger of you know obviously this is on a, a slightly different strand to what we've we've been talking about, but it it certainly ties in um, that during the Cheltenham Festival. Um, punters were that were betting on on horse racing were rewarded with free spins on on casino games as with the with the gambling white paper on the horizon with horse racing attempting to distance itself from um, slot games and, and casino games things like this feel unsettling shall we say Lee yeah I, I think Jonathan was absolutely right in what he said um, I think they should be regarded as two very separate entities. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a punter. I, I, I would have plenty of bets over the Cheltenham Festival. Um, and I would have, I, you know, I, I, as an account holder, I receive offers of, of free spins and, and this, that and the other. I would be very much of the opinion that a, an, a, a, an ideal situation would be if bookmakers had two separate accounts. I've got no interest whatsoever in, in casino punting and spins or what, no interest whatsoever. I shouldn't be receiving marketing for that sort of activity if I have no interest in it or if I haven't voluntarily signed up for it. Now, I, I, I fully intended to call this um, podcast Cause for Optimism with a question mark at the end. We haven't met much of it yet, Lee, but... Um, the, the, the reason for it was um, yesterday saw the or yesterday evening at Tattles saw the launch of World Pool 2022. Myself and, and Gary O'Brien were there for, for, for racing TV. Before we get into it, let's hear from the chief executive of the UK Tote Group, Alex Frost, in conversation with Gary, telling us a little bit more. So the inaugural World Pool um, was courtesy of Royal Ascot in, in Hong Kong um, in 2019. And I think, you know, here we are today with it now up to 17 events and, and growing all the time. So it's a really exciting time. What else have we got to look forward to in 2022? I know you're keen to grow this, get more and more tracks involved, plenty of initiatives for the punters as well. Just maybe fill us in a little bit on that. Yeah, I mean, it started off, um, and to a certain extent, it still is in its pilot form. You know, we're still um, growing it all the time. But, um, you know, having started with, you know, just very small, pools in, in tote form before 2019. Whirlpool's bought around £20 million worth of liquidity and upwards per day. Um, new tracks, um, you've got Goodwood, York, Ireland, um, Epsom, new markets. So it's getting far broader now um, and hopefully it's a concept that can really, really bring UK and Irish racing to the global scene. It's very exciting in that respect. Ireland featured on the roster for the first time. I think it was last year, Alex, last was the year, opening absolutely. day of Irish Champions yeah. Weekend, yeah. Irish Champions Stakes Day at Leopard Sound. Is the ambition there to maybe get more and more Irish race days involved? I think so. I think we know we've, we've, we've started to say with Ascot and it's grown this far. I think it, you know, Ireland represents a huge chunk of you know, the best racing in the world. Um, so having it showcased last year was a big, big step forward. Um, and then for the consumer, you know, we're getting very deep pools now. Um, with some really interesting pricing, you know, the, the overpay on the Derby was massive. The overpay on the biggest whirlpool event we've had so far, the Nunthorpe, um, was huge as well. So, you know, there's some bits for the consumer as well that we get a really, um, you know, big kicker. Um, and with SP Guarantee on course as well now, um, you know, while you get some big overpays, you also don't get the underpays anymore, which I think is really, really important. Okay, so. Um, just a, a short clip there from from Alex. There was a, a lot of excitement um, about this yesterday, and I, I thought notably from two trainers who 
you know, essentially can be as impartial as they like. William Haggis, who we'll hear from later on talking about horses, he, he, he described it as potentially the biggest opportunity for British racing in his over 30 years as a trainer. John Gosden then gave an impassioned speech um, after the Q&A session where he said such things as, the gambling review is going to hit us like a bullet between the eyes. UK trainers, such as William and I, are a nursery to the world. British racing is staring down the barrel and we need to internationalise. This is potentially a great opportunity for investment. What are your thoughts? Um, if I just take, maybe divide it into two bits, Tom. Firstly, the, the potential benefit to the sport in this country and in Ireland of the, the world pool. And that has to be significant. Um, we, in effect, um, we're not opening our doors to, to the rest of the world because those doors are already opening, are already open, but we are inviting punters in other territories to get involved in, in these British and Irish races, to take an interest in these British and Irish races and to in, in effect invest with their punting money in those British and Irish races, and that can only be a good thing. Um, the, the, obviously, not surprisingly, the, the, the participants that were there yesterday spoke about the potential benefits to prize money, and that is clearly important, although I think we should always say that when we talk about greater investment in horse racing, the fruits of that investment should not come simply in prize money, but in facilities for the public horse racing is part of the entertainment business and those who are being entertained have to be um of the, the utmost consideration of the, of the people putting on the show so if we receive uh, new money that has to go into prize money but it also has to go into into what the public uh, get on, on on a racehorse into the, the wider infrastructure of the sport i think it would be a great thing if more people were using uh, the tote to place their bets horse racing benefits when that happens i think punters in general terms as well will benefit too tom we read regularly uh, of uh, punters having their accounts closed or restricted by bookmakers now clearly betting on the toe is not the same as taking a long-term view or an on-the-day view with a bookmaker but the toe has got better and better at being competitive with uh, bookmakers SPs and I would hope that they are rewarded uh, with greater support uh, from punters uh, in the years going forward. So I think William Haggis is absolutely right. The, the world, and John Gosden is right, the world pool represents a significant opportunity um, for the sport and that should be embraced. I think the nursery ground argument is interesting too. Now clearly there is logic to say that if um, our prize money is not competitive with the rest of the world, that we are likely to lose horses to, to other territories. There is logic to say that, and trainers clearly feel that that is happening. It's an argument that John has been putting forward uh, for a long time, and I've no doubt he's doing that with absolute sincerity and with good evidence based on what he's seeing happening in his own yard. However, I did write a, 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 an investigative special report on this for the, for the post last year, and what is clear is that to a, a significant extent anyway, the data doesn't actually support those claims. Hong Kong, for example, is a territory where we've often spoken about our horses being sold abroad to, to Hong Kong because of their greater prize money. If you look at imports, the number of horses imported from Britain 
to, to Hong Kong on an annual basis. In 2011, 51 British horses were imported or exported to, to Hong Kong. In 2012, 47 horses were exported. In 2019, 34 horses were exported from Britain. 2020, 28 horses were exported from Britain to Hong Kong. So the numbers going from Britain to Hong Kong have actually been falling, not rising. The numbers going from Ireland to Hong Kong, there's been a steady trend of those, basically the same, 27 and 28 in 2011 and 2012, 22 and 28 in 2019, and in 2020, if you look at exports from Britain to Australia, in the 2010-11 Australian season, 144 British horses left here to race in Australia, 116 in the following year. Uh, in 2018, 19, 2019, 20, those numbers had risen to 189 and 157, but not massively so. In Ireland, the, the numbers who um, were exported actually rose from 75 and 87 in 2010-11, 2011-12 to 146 and 119 in 2018-19, So Ireland, although having greater prize money uh, than, than Britain, actually was seeing more of its horses exported to Australia. And if you look at exports from Australia to Hong Kong, Australia a territory that has far greater prize money than either Britain or Ireland, the number of horses going from Australia to Hong Kong has gone from 121 and 128 in 2010-11 and 2011-12 to 242 and 248 in 2018-19-2019-20. So the number of horses going from the, 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 the territory of great largesse in terms of price in Australia to Hong Kong has actually increased. Hong Kong trends are more keen to get horses from Australia than they are from Britain or from from Ireland. There's also been a relative stability if you look at the number of horses who achieve a racing post rating of 100 plus in Britain, Ireland over the distances that you might think would be susceptible to us losing horses. So in 2011, 268 horses achieved an RPI of 100 plus over a mile to mile and a furlong. That was 261 in 2020. Um, over a mile two to a mile three, it was 213 in 2011, 198 in 2020 and the people that are exporting the horses and by that i mean the the bloodstock agents and the horse transporters they argue there hasn't really been a significant change um that, that our horses have always been popular with international territories our prize money has always been rubbish compared to theirs and that hasn't changed the numbers are pretty much the same alistair donald who through Sackville Donald has been the prime exporter of horses to, to Hong Kong from this country, says again, the numbers haven't um, really increased at all. What's happened is there's been greater spotlight on, on it when they, when, when they go. We used to buy just as many horses to go abroad, if not more, Alistair said in the, in the piece I wrote last year. The difference is that nowadays private sales have seen far more coverage in the press and on Twitter, which would never have happened before. In the past, nobody here followed the racing in Hong Kong, America and Australia. They now notice horses remember winning abroad in a way they never did. So I think the, the data, the hard data, suggests that the, those fears are maybe a little exaggerated. That said, um, the trainers involved are presumably experiencing things themselves. Um, there's also the case that if you look at the number of horses who are being bought from uh, yearling sales to race abroad, lots of our good young horses now, yearlings are being sold to race in, in California. So they're clearly 
there clearly is a problem. And what I've said there about the data doesn't try to uh, dismiss the problem. There clearly is a problem. And logically, if our prize money isn't competitive, that problem will get worse. The Middle East, I think, is a place with regards to horses moving there going forward, we, we, we do need to be wary of. Um, and that was something James Willoughby touched upon, I believe it was last Tuesday. Apologies if I led you the wrong way. It was Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, with regard to the, you know, the, the growing strength of their racing because of the prize money on offer. Um, you know, Bahrain and Saudi, certainly there are, there are good horses that are, that are heading there more and more. I think, I think that's an area we need to be wary of um, going forward as a growing trend to decent horses heading that way as well, Lee. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Tom. That, that, that clearly that whole region is getting bigger and bigger and will only get bigger and bigger and even if it's the case that um horses because of their ownership the horses that might have uh stayed around in in britain or ireland will go to race in 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 saudi arabia in bahrain in dubai in qatar because of who owns them um that will be a a loss to the sport so i think that is a factor the sad news that uh, desmond stoneham the post french correspondent has has passed away what can you tell us about desmond this is really sad news, um, Tom. Desmond Stoneham was um, an absolute legend um, in, in many ways. Certainly he was a legend of French racing. Whenever I was out there, he was referred to as Monsieur Desmond. Um, he was French racing right to his, his core, really, even though he was a, um, a, a proper British gent. He'd been out there covering horse racing for the sporting life. Uh, from 1977 in Paris. He then moved across to the Racing Post. He also worked for the Irish Field. Throughout that time, he was a key figure in the International Racing Bureau as well uh, as a link between, between France and, um, and Britain and Ireland. He did fantastic work for all those, those organisations. Um, I know that myself, as, as someone who, who worked with him as a, as a Racing Post colleague for, for many years, he was a valued colleague, a cherished colleague, really, because everybody loved Desmond. Um, professionally, I knew that when I was uh, news editing for the Racing Post, if there was a story going to break in, in France, that Desmond would get it because uh, he was a top-class journalist, but also he was held in the very highest respect by people who worked in French racing, by trainers, by owners, by jockeys, by administrators, by breeders. They all respected Desmond and they held him in the very highest regard, as we all did as well. But as a, as a person too, Tom, when I first started going out to, to work at Longchamp in, in, in French racing um, as a young reporter, he could not have been more helpful. He wouldn't have known me uh, from Adam, really, but he was exceptionally generous. He was keen to teach you all that he knew to make your experience working there as productive and enjoyable as possible. And that generosity was extended as well to a lot of young people who, who worked with him. He had assistants who worked with him throughout the time um, I, I, I knew him and before. And a lot of those people have gone on to hold very high-ranking jobs um, and have great careers with, with organisations like Godolphin, the Aga Khan Stud, the Niarkas family, Echidia, 
um, they would all tell you what a superb person Desmond was. You saw that on, on race courses, but you also saw that in, in restaurants. He was a, a real bon viveur. He had great knowledge of, of food and wine. And if you were in a restaurant with Desmond, you knew that you would eat well and that you would drink well, but also that you would be amongst the very best company. He was a, a fantastic man. Um, he would be hugely missed. He leaves a tremendous legacy and he really was um, a legend of French racing. And I think I and anyone who, who knew Desmond and um, hugely enjoyed his company, we would send deep sympathies to his, his beloved wife, Evelyn, um, their daughters, their grandchildren and, and all the family. He was a top, top man. Now, uh, news from uh, Jacob Webb, who uh, was paralysed, very sadly, in a, a fall back in 2020 in France. Uh, Jake is undertaking a, a very exciting new challenge. Here he is to tell us a little bit more. So the challenge is starting on the July the 7th, and I'll be hand-cycling um, from Cheltenham Racecourse to Newmarket Racecourse, which is around about 140 miles and we'll be attempting to cover that distance in three days um, and there'll be a group of family and friends with me as well who will be cycling uh, joining me for the for the challenge just explain to people out there um, how much more um, testing or difficult powering a, a, a cycle with your arms is and why that makes this all the more of a challenge for you well, you've, you've got the, the weight of the hand cycle, as, as light as it is, it is still going to be heavier than a, than a normal bike. Um, you're in that seated position as well. Um, so going up hills at the moment is really quite a task and uh, finding that quite difficult because you've obviously got to carry all of your weight and the bike's weight. Then the wheel sizes as well, you've got to consider the rotation um, of the pedals needs to be more because the wheels are smaller. So my arms are just doing double the work, um, let alone, you know, then the fact that I've given myself three months to train for this because um, my arms have never, you know, it's completely alien to be doing this rotation for miles upon miles. Um, so they're just at the moment, you know, they're, they're just going to take a bit of a battering. Where, where are you at the moment with regards to how much hand cycling you've done? Oh God, I wouldn't have even done 20 miles. <sighs> I, I viewed this as a bit like, <clears throat> when I when I decided to do this challenge, I wanted to take it on a bit of like the concept that Billy Munger did with his comic relief challenge where you go into it as a big novice. You know, no training and that and that is kind of the the... The, the challenge in itself is that you're you're learning a new a new thing and, and taking it on completely unprepared. So you've given yourself a time period to prepare yourself for it. Can you just go back to to, to what happened and why you're in this position, Jacob? Yeah, so um, it'll be two years in June um, this year since since my accident in France, um, where I was. <laughs> Paralysed from the, the chest down after a fall at Altoids, so it's um, I'm sure it'll be quite emotional as well. When you're in this situation, you get a lot of help. So the two charities, which are the Injured Jockeys Fund and the Matt Hampson Foundation, have been 
incredibly helpful through both of their centres, Oaksy House and the Get Busy Living Centre in Melton Mowbray, uh, for physio, for rehab, for a social environment, you know. Um, it's, it's been incredibly important to, to be a part of these charities. So there was always the point of I wanted to give back to that. And then on a personal level, when you're paralysed, you know, the first six weeks of your injury, you are completely helpless. You can't move, you're, you're, you're bedridden, you're in pain constantly. And then even 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 when you're fully rehabbed and you, you feel as strong as, as you possibly can leaving the hospital, you don't have to go through day-to-day life not being able to complete and achieve sometimes the simplest of tasks, be it just getting a mug out of a cupboard is, is sometimes like mission impossible. Um, or picking something up the floor can just create pain um, through your back or your arms just because of the load that they have to, they come under on a daily basis. So there was this, this, this achieved, this, this hopefully going to be the sense that I'm going to go out and attempt to complete something all by myself, um, which will just be a, sense, a great sense of achievement. I find it quite liberating being able, being able to do something at speed again, you know, um, when you're so confined to a chair, which is slow and bulky, to be able to go out and do that is quite liberating. So, And if we can get more, and then the links with racing as well, if we can get more people in um, wheelchairs and with disabilities for racing, I can help with that as well. It would be great. Well, look, um, good luck first and foremost. Um, let me let me touch on how to find Jacob. So at JacobWeb9622 on Twitter. I know there'll be a, a link in your bio as to how people can donate to you there. Um, you set up an Instagram. You'll recognise one of um, Birdie's drawings that um, he's done there as your as your um, profile picture. Cross.counties.cycle.challenge. And the, the website itself, you can go to sponsorme.co.uk forward slash Jacob Webb, two Bs, slash the hyphen cross hyphen counties hyphen cycle hyphen challenge. And you can find uh, Jacob's page there. Um, and please sponsor away. Um, it's, it's in its early days. Um, but, um, you know, let's, let's get this ball rolling. And Jacob, thanks for your time. I wish you all the best. Cheers, Tom. Thank you very much. Okay, let's head out to Nick. All right, it's Tuesday, which means we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, their excellent stallion book, and of course the Global Stallion app. It's to Ireland again we head this week, to a stud that was established in 1906 in County Meath, Tara Stud and Derek Eiston, who has been not only involved in developing and nurturing this stud, but has also been heavily involved in the politics of Irish breeding, having been chairman of the Irish Thoroughbred Breeders Association on more than one occasion. Uh, Derek, great to welcome you to the show. Uh, give me a give me a little state of the nation uh, address to kick off with. How how is the the health of the thoroughbred industry from from your perspective as a, a stallion master, stud owner, somebody steeped in the game? It's incredible. You know, with all that's going on in the world, it's incredibly strong. Like it's an incredibly vibrant industry. Uh, you know, with what, uh, even last year when there were all sorts of issues after two years of COVID and most other people, people in business were in trouble. The yearling business was up. The sales of horses and training to be it America or to Hong Kong and all of those sorts of places is up. There's a satiable appetite for foals and the breeding stock sale was on fire. 
So uh, sometimes the horse industry is, is counter-cyclical, but certainly it's a, it's a very strong business. What is it about the horse business? What is it about the horse industry that gives it that sort of resilience? I think most of it's done by the seat of our pants. And we have to be very reactive to what's going on. You know, uh, when the thing was flying, say, 20 years ago, we had uh, certainly luxuries that we, that, that we can't afford to do now. I'm, cert- I'm certainly working harder now than I did 20 years ago. Um, so um, we need to be focused. We need to be responsive to the market. And at a time of, of staff shortage and high costs of running a business like this, um, you don't need any spare flannel about um, you need to be, you need to keep the business sharp and you need to breed winners and if you don't breed winners you won't stay in it and the other fortunate thing that I suppose a lot of Irish farms have compared to maybe our British counterparts is that I'm also a farmer I have a lot of cattle I grow corn um, so I'm a farmer as well as a, 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 a bloodstock producer and stallion master so we have, and normally if the cattle business is good, the horse business may not be so good. So mixed farming gets us through the whole thing as well. Do you think that gives you greater context? Absolutely, because I, I think, uh, to be honest, I find it difficult to understand how somebody can just do horses on their own. You know, I run cattle with horses here. And I just even notice now they're out of grass at the moment. If the cattle aren't doing well, um, the horses won't be doing well. In other words, the goodness has to be in the ground. So it does, and uh, it's better for the farm. It's it's uh, it's it, it also gives you another income stream. So yes, no, I think it's I, I couldn't be without the farm as well. Now your your big noise at the moment is a, a case of you who you bred, who was just spectacular for Odo McGuinness in Dubai the other day, and also won the Prix de Labe last year you're breeding group one horses from relatively modest origins do you think this is something that is that that is something you can continue to do is it is it a dream that anybody can aspire to well that's a there's a number of things to that first off isn't it great that somebody can go into to buy a horse for a thousand quid and win the prix de la as a three-year-old and then go to dubai and win the big sprint, and particularly on a night where five of the races were won by Japanese Japanese horses. You know, this Irish horse comes along and properly celebrated by Ada McGuinness and Gary Devlin and all his friends and family. Uh, and that's the beauty of, of horse racing. Um, with For me as a breeder, okay, I took a bath when I sold him for a thousand quid, but wasn't it great that I did sell him for a thousand quid? I still have his mother. Uh, we have a half-brother this year. And actually, for a little farm like this, we bred two Group 1 winners in two years. So um, it's amazing what we can do. I know, I know you've got concerns, though, Derek, about the the future of the of the smaller breeder and and farms of a more boutique size. Yeah, I look to be honest. From where I come from, I, I believe that the you know the smaller breeder is the essence of the industry. You know, in Ireland, you know, there's an off quote a statistic that ninety percent of breeders are five mares or less. That's probably got changed quite a bit in the last number of years. Now we've got into the situation where some breeders have an excess of 200 mares. When you put that each, 
So when you put that into context, that, you know, whether you go to book two in Tattersalls or you go to the Orbe and Goss, there's sales of five, six, seven, eight hundred horses. So when you see that uh, some of these mega farms and the numbers they're producing, there is undoubtedly a huge number of people getting dislodged from breeding horses. And if again, if you look a little bit further, you know, you go to any awards night, I, as you said, I was chairman of the ITBA on a couple of occasions. You go to an awards night, it's, it's invariably the smaller breeders that are winning the awards. And I think they are, you know, the more dynamic, the more colourful and, uh, you know, add diversity to what we're producing. I'm a believer that horse racing isn't like Formula One racing. We don't want to end up that we have basically two or three competitive teams and everybody else is just following along for, for the minor places. That's not what sells a sport to me. Uh, and I just find it a little bit of a pity that particularly the number of stallion farms are getting squeezed. I think about that, the only one north of a line of Maynooth now and you know, the I'm about the same height up as, as Tally Ho. But there's no other flat stallions that really been been stood in the, the area now, where there would have been years ago. Um, and some of these big farms covering vast amount of mares. And I'm not so sure if it's not even unfair competition in some of the cases, because now a lot of these stallions are being filled by full chairs, particularly in their second and third seasons, which has two things. First of all, it keeps up the price of the stallion. And number two, it starves the rest of the industry of a mare for covering. And whereas it might seem a, a smart uh, thing for a breeder to do, first of all, they're only going to have half the fold at the end of the day. Number two, I think some of those mares will have certainly been overcovered. And number three, it's very, very unfair on the breeders then who have gone along and forked out some money themselves to buy the nomination. And when they go to the sales, it's it's they're like the number the progeny of those horses are like the number ten bus that come around every ten minutes. So, would you be in favour then of? Uh, I mean, the Americans tried this and they've been pushed back in the courts. Would you be in favour of actually capping stallions' books? No, that certainly can't be done. But I do think it's a pity that uh, you know these second and third year sires that have been filled with full shares. I think that is probably one of the blights on our industry just right now. You know, I spoke to a breeder last year that had six mares. Um, he had to buy, in this farm, he had to buy one nomination. He got five full chairs. Well, it meant that, you know, I probably would have got one of those mares. You know, Morris Burns would have got another one of those mares. But we didn't get it because it was a land grab for market share. And I just think it, the dominant forces within this industry, I think should have a look at what they're at a little bit because with power comes responsibility and I'm not so sure they're exercising their power properly. In terms of your own power, such as it is, you've got three stallions at the moment, Alhebeb, yeah. Estidkar and, and River Boyne. And yeah. on, on which of those are your, are your hopes most meaningfully pinned, do you think, to, to really break through? I suppose it's now River Boyne. You know, now, I, this is a horse I bred. He's a Group 1 winner. He was a proper, proper horse in America. You know, he won on grass. He beat a lot of good European horses in America. He basically won, as a three-year-old, any decent grass race in California that could be run. And I bought him back. And I didn't do so as a vanity project. You know, he's a smashing, smashing horse. And I have lovely folds by him. So I'm pinning my, my colours to him. 
very strongly. The other two son, are sons of uh, Dark Angel. Um, Al Habib sort of trundles along quite well. Now he he'd get more than a share of winners. I bred quite a few two-year-old winners by myself last year, and something similar with Estica. It's just difficult to now buy a stallion because again, with these huge books of mares being covered, it means that you know the Group Two horse probably doesn't get his place at stud anymore, and on top of that. The genetic pool has certainly been been squeezed here because the market tends to go for, you know, sons of certain sires. A couple of years ago, it was the sons of of Dark Angel. At the moment, now it's sons of Kodiak. So there will be a lot of colts in training that won't get their place at stud and maybe they should have done. Our thanks to Nick and to Derek Eisten of Tara Stud. Lee, a tip for you, if you will. Yes, so it's the opening day of the Craven meeting at Newmarket. Tom, I would be lying if I said I thought it was a sensational opening day uh, to the Craven meeting. The free handicap has five runners. Uh, we've got a 2002nd Master of the Seas in the Earl of Sefton. That's true. But we've also got a, uh, a Nelgwyn Stakes, and I don't think we'll be producing a Guineas winner looking at the, the field. I think you'd be surprised if it did, but it's a, it's a solid enough race. It's a, a rematch between Cachet and Hello You, who raced on many occasions against each other last season. Hello You is conceding weight to Cachet this time. I think the market prefers Cachet. I prefer Hello You. So I'm going to go with Hello You in the 335 at Newmarket, the Landwade Stud Nell Gwynn Stakes. Lee, thanks very much indeed. That was Tuesday, the 12th of April. Bye bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.